Hi, I'm Sky, and welcome back to Founder Friendly. I'm here with Andre and Casey Aylward from Costa Noa Ventures. And today we're going to be talking about SaaS companies. And so Andre will tell us a little bit more about what a SaaS company is. Yeah, just for any listeners who are unfamiliar with the term, a SaaS company can be pretty broad. It's a broad umbrella, but like most fundamentally, it's an internet application that can like serve a customer or user in any kind of way. So some companies that you may know that are technically SaaS companies are Adobe. They make all kinds of digital products. Might have used Discord or Slack now that we've been online so much. Those are also SaaS companies. And then on the enterprise side, if you're familiar, companies like Snowflake, um, HubSpot, those are also SaaS companies. So thank you so much, Casey, for joining us. Um, if you also want to tell us at all about your background, or we can save that for later. Um, my first question is, do you generally look for SaaS solutions that offer a marginal improvement on an existing solution or more greenfield opportunities? Thanks so much for having me here. I'm excited to chat today. Uh, so it, it depends. I've invested in companies in really either category. So for a solution that are, offers a more marginal improvement, uh, and I guess I'll hopefully say it's more than just marginal, there, there really has to be real ROI there to the end user. So whether that's in some form of gain productivity or cost savings or a much better user experience, um, you know, really has to offer at least one of those things. Um, I do think, though, that it can also be a really clever way to go to market alongside a more well-known, more established product that people are generally dissatisfied with. So uh, it can help your product get more adoption quickly uh, and for your sales team to really be able to quickly qualify potential customers. Uh, the other thing, too, budget. It's an important one, but usually budget will have been established for that specific uh, area. There are also some inherent risks, as you can imagine. So the product that you're trying to marginally improve on, the people at that company might just wake up one day and decide to build it themselves or maybe decide to cut off access to the data or access to their system. So it's just an underlying risk you always have to be thinking about. Uh, greenfield opportunities, on the other hand, you know, super exciting, uh, a really exciting exercise in category creation, but that can also be really expensive and hard to do. You have to educate the market, which can definitely take a long time. And what I'll say is, you know, the story that you're telling people just it matters just as much as what you're actually building. And so I'll note that typically for a category creation opportunity there has to be a pretty much a tectonic shift in the underlying enabling technology. Uh, so I think of those as acceleration of the cloud as one example, or maybe the explosion of AIML uh, that really leads to a new set of opportunities to pop up. So the, the timing there is important and I'd say it requires a little bit of luck. Okay. Um, I guess that leads well into our like next question that we had. You mentioned a few times about how that like relates to like their go-to-market strategy. Um, so I guess more generally, how do SaaS companies develop or determine their go-to-market strategy? Like, do you have any examples of what that looks like? Um, at a high level, you have to decide if your product is more marketing or sales intensive to determine what the right go-to-market strategy is. 
there are a ton of elements that influence this, but I think it, it broadly comes down to a handful of key things that I'll highlight. In general, marketing-focused products tend to be, um, you know, less customizable and a little bit more simple. So it's something I think of as an that an end user can go and pick it up, you know, use it and understand it quickly. Uh, I'd say these products have a higher velocity sales cycle. They're usually initial smaller deal sizes and tend to actually be used by more people within an organization. So, you know, common ones that I'm sure all of us use, but a company like Dropbox or Slack, those types of productivity or collaboration tools. Um, I'd also say open source software is a good example of this type of bottom-up adoption in the infrastructure world. So companies are relying on this model where a technical end user can basically play with the product first, discover it for free, et cetera. Uh, in our portfolio, in the Costa Noa portfolio, that is, uh, Coiled and Stackhawk are both built on top of popular open source projects and have a higher velocity bottom-up model. On, on the other hand, sales-intensive products are, are sold top-down to a key decision-maker or an exec in a company, like a CIO or a CFO, for example. Uh, it's a more traditional strategy, as you can imagine, that employs a direct sales team. So because of that, the deal sizes are larger, the sales cycles tend to be longer, and there is a higher degree of, I guess, implementation and customization and usually support for that, that type of product. Um, uh, within the last year of remote working and selling, there's just been a lot of pressure, I'd say, on teams to think about flipping more to a go-to-market approach that is bottom-up or marketing-led. You know, you can't be going to conferences, you can't really host steak dinners for clients. So a lot of teams are rethinking their strategy uh, in this current environment. That's really interesting. Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot about upstreaming in terms of SaaS companies. And I'm curious then if now that that's the trend, um, bottom-up approach, does that determine at all the companies that you decide to invest in? Definitely, it does. Uh, I'd say, well, the product itself kind of in inherently informs the type of go-to-market strategy to pursue at a, at a micro level. You still have to consider the market you're in and some of the dynamics at play there at the, at the macro level. And, and what I'll say is a lot of investors, you know, some of them just pick markets that they want to hitch a ride to and don't make exceptions. So, for example, I know a lot of investors who won't touch retail tech or won't touch companies that sell exclusively to the federal government because there are, you know, while these are really big markets, there are a lot of known challenges uh, in selling to those types of, of customers. So when it comes to the, the companies that I invest in, I don't really have rules around it, but the go-to-market strategy is, is definitely just as important as the product itself. And uh, at the, so at the seed stage, the proposed go-to-market tells me a couple of things. One, uh, most basically, I think it tells me who I want on the founding team or the initial team. So if you can't do enterprise sales, for example, and you have a sales intensive motion, it's a pretty tall order to, to be able to do all of that and learn all of it. 
And we're really betting on the founder, uh, usually the founder CEO, to be able to close the first handful of customers. So we want to know that they're capable of that. The second thing it tells me, uh, kind of within a degree, is how much capital the company will need to raise. So depending on the product, I might ask, can this team you know, get really quick user feedback or usage data without building a feature complete product? Uh, and they may not require as much capital before getting to a good place to raise the Series A. So if you're building a top-down product for, you know, within the security space, let's say, and need to sell it top down to a CISO, you're just going to need more capital to be able to build that, uh, to be able to build a product that has enterprise-ready features. Uh, I, I guess this kind of leads into my next question, which is, you know, you're, you're speaking a bit about, um, you know, both the, the product, which you're able to understand um, really deeply. And I think um, that has to do with a bit of your background in computer science, but I know in college you studied Asian Middle Eastern studies with a concentration in East Asia. So I'm curious about um, your journey to VC. Uh, did you self-learn CS and how is that influencing um, your approach today? So I, that's a couple of questions. So I guess we'll just talk about uh, your journey to VC first. Yeah, definitely. So I was really lucky in how the journey into VC went for me. I'm actually a self-taught engineer. And so it, for me, it really came out of a place of curiosity and wanting to, to teach myself something I was interested in. Uh, the last job I had before moving into venture was uh, as a software engineer at Pinterest. And you know, when I was thinking about what I wanted to do next coming out of that role, I honestly didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I did know that I wanted to get back into early stage in some capacity. So what I did is I spent a lot of time meeting with founders and friends who are at early stage companies and friends of friends at early stage companies and a handful of VCs as well. And, you know, I think throughout the process, uh, a number of things helped me land a role at a fund like Costa Noa. So I'd say, first of all, my background was different than your traditional venture associate. I didn't have that kind of two-year investment banking experience or role in management consulting that honestly a lot of other folks in the industry have. And instead, I had multiple years of mostly software engineering experience and uh, experience at both a startup and a later stage company. But really what that gave me was sort of this intuition, this network, and this interest in, in investing in developer and data infrastructure. And Cosno really wanted to have someone covering those areas. So they actually liked that my background was in those spaces. Uh, so that kind of alignment on focus area was, was definitely a big one. The second thing I did was, I say active networking. So meet, just meeting tons of people. And it definitely played a large role in how I found my way into venture. Uh, as most people know, you know, jobs just don't get posted in VC. So you have to really be the first person that somebody thinks about and refers when a role pops up. So what I did is I made, you know, friends with a good number of people who were in the industry. Um, I was younger at the time, so they, they were more junior folks around my age. 
but they were great. They really helped me learn the ropes and hear about what companies VCs thought were interesting and what spaces VCs thought were interesting. And funnily enough, I actually got connected to Costa Noa through one of these friends. So I'd say the last thing is that I was also pretty deliberate and, and targeted in terms of, you know, looking at the funds that I thought I would want to work at. And so I knew I wanted to go, go in with an enterprise focus and also specifically be doing early stage, as I mentioned. So I really narrowed it down and that led me to Costa Noa pretty quickly. Awesome. Um, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, especially advice on being like the first person that comes to mind uh, in terms of getting a job in VC. I guess um, what I'm thinking about after hearing your story a little bit more is how your experience and like different kinds of teams um, helps you understand how a team that you're investing in might operate on the long term. Like, do you think there is um, any characteristics that makes like a particularly strong team to you? So before becoming a, a VC, I worked mostly as a software engineer and I was both at a very early stage startup and then later at Pinterest, which at the time was a few years ahead of the, the IPO. So a pretty mature company. So just from that, you know, across enterprise consumer and early stage, later stage, et cetera, I've, I've spanned a lot from those two experiences. I'd say most of the teams I'm I'm backing at the seed stage are really just the co-founders. So it's a single founder or maybe a couple of co-founders, founding engineers at that point in time. So you're really counting on you know that nucleus of individuals to be able to hire an amazing, amazing team uh, and you know hiring amazing talent basically as a core competency. So I put a lot of weight in the skills, leadership, expertise, et cetera, of the early team. Uh, a lot of the qualities I look for in the leadership team, especially in the CEO, they end up heavily shaping the types of teams that he or she ends up building over time. And so there, there are a few things I've learned from teams that I've been on that are qualities I now look for in founding teams or early teams. I definitely like founders who are continuous learners and are adaptive. So I think this type of mindset really encourages, you know, open and honest discussion where the best ideas tend to win. And it's a really positive thing to be able to have this type of open dialogue, um, you know, just within a team. And so just thinking back to uh, experiences I've had as an engineer building, building products, um, both for I'd say enterprise users or consumer consumers, uh, we would always experiment and kill things that weren't working and have pretty low ego around it. So I'm used to that type of culture and, and thinking. Uh, the other thing is when I was early at the first startup I worked for, we were constantly interviewing potential customers and users. We're just doing it all the time. Multiple people you know, on the team were listening in running lots of user tests, um, things like that. So we'd always have these, you know, either new prototypes or mock-ups, uh, things that we wanted pretty tangible feedback on, even if it wasn't built yet. So whenever I meet with an early company uh, and they don't have mocks or nothing at all is built yet, um, or maybe they don't have notes from the, the dozens of customer interviews they did, I, I think that can be a bit of a red flag. 
I do like to kind of see that obsession with customer feedback and that uh, desire to always be building. And that's just something that I've, I've kind of lived myself. Yeah. And I'm sure, I mean, as you said, I think having a unique background in CS does make you such an asset to a VC that is specializing in these areas of SaaS, infrastructure, security. Um, and you were talking about founders um, and their skill sets. And I know that at Costa Noa, there's a commitment to working hands-on alongside founders, which I'm sure for founders, it sets Costa Noa apart from you know, another VC that's just providing capital. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about Costa Noa's commitment to doing this? Um, maybe you know, why they've made this decision and, and how um, they execute at scale? Yeah. So working hands-on with founders is pretty core to our strategy. Uh, we're an early stage fund and usually either leading or co-leading a seed or a series A round. And so in a lot of ways, the fund size drives our strategy. And so when we invest at seed or series A, it's still, you know, every investment is still a relatively significant portion of the fund compared to other firms that might you know, be a lot bigger and put smaller checks into a ton of investments. So for us, truly every investment uh, matters materially. I'd say because of that too, our portfolio is concentrated from an ownership perspective. And also it's pretty concentrated in our specific investment themes. And so this really allows us to focus our health and expertise. I'd say our team's background is uniquely around enterprise. And so we can help our companies because we only invest in enterprise businesses and not consumer companies. So I'm on the investment team. That's very true of our investment team. We also have a platform team or an operating team that works with the portfolio companies and they also share this, this background and expertise. The other thing too is as lead investors, we pretty aggressively reserve capital in each fund to do uh, follow-on investments for the existing portfolio companies because we believe in supporting them throughout their entire life cycle. Uh, on the platform side, we, as I mentioned, have this full operating team focused on helping portfolio companies uh, do what we call getting to great faster. And so that's you know really helping with recruiting, thinking through your go-to-market strategy and maybe building out the sales playbook, um, things like that. And so I think in this environment, you really have to have a unique value prop. And I, you know, I think founders really appreciate uh, all the additional value that we bring on top of just the, the capital. And for me specifically, most of the founders I work with are technical. And so they haven't really ever had to, their first time founders really ever had to build out uh, you know, an entire go-to-market function or think through that deeply. And so we uh, were good thought partners to them, both on the investment side and on the operating side. Um, it, I, I think it's refreshing to hear like a VC being hands-on with founders. Um, I, I personally think that's a, a good path to success. <laughs> Um, when, when we were doing a little bit of research uh, and looking at your bio, we noticed that you talk a little bit about some side projects that you have done and are still working on. Um, so I guess like as you come close to an end, is there anything you've been working on recently that you'd like to share? 
So I wish I had more time to do stuff outside of work. Uh, I'd say the last the last year has been absolutely non nonstop, just in terms of how many companies have been formed and also financings within the portfolio. So I'm definitely looking forward to things. Uh, maybe slowing down a bit so I can uh, get to my my list of things I want to try out and products I want to try out. Um, I guess you know within the context of of work, I, I am looking forward to doing more company incubations this year. So uh, not really a side project, but uh, more of a kind of a project I'm I'm working on uh, within the scope of my job and. Uh, this is basically something I'm, I'm very excited about, but it's where, you know, I work alongside a potential founder and do a lot of the customer discovery work or market research right alongside them. And so, you know, at the end of last year, I did this more formally with an entrepreneur in residence that we had on our team. Uh, but I'm also working on it right now with people who are kind of at their companies and starting to think about uh, what they want to do next. That sounds really exciting. I'm, I'm sure it's also fulfilling though to have a busy year, but yeah, we all want to be able to have time to maybe try out um, some of the things that, you know, side projects or ideas that, that we've been writing down. I am yeah. curious though, um, for us as students who may not have access to a lot of founders that we can work alongside, but if there's any project or skill that you recommend for students to try out or skill set to develop um, and maybe they're interested in venture or they're interested in SaaS or CS more generally, um, what advice might you have? I think the one piece of maybe uh, generic advice for something I, I recommend for folks who are interested in venture or uh, maybe even interested in SaaS companies, you know, I think earlier on in my career, what was really helpful for me was uh, actually working at a very early stage company. And so at the time, you know, all of my friends were at investment banks or really fancy management consulting roles. And, you know, I was kind of wearing, wearing ripped jeans in South Park in San Francisco, uh, working on a, a team of 10 people. And for me, I think, you know, that early experience when I was trying to figure out what I was really passionate about I kind of had exposure to all sides of the business from within. And I think that really helped me actually figure out, you know, what I wanted to do. And so for me, you know, being at an early stage company, while there are obviously a lot of risks to doing that, and it can definitely be a bit of a roller coaster, uh, I think that was actually one of the more formative experiences in my early career. So I think the thing I'd tell, tell folks who are, you know, trying to learn um, is to maybe have one experience in your career where you're at something really, really early, because I think it really speeds up your learning cycles. That's great to hear. I mean, our club is predominantly um, filled with business students who, you know, our business school is a bit of a funnel into investment banking. And so I think it's always refreshing um, and encouraging to hear that that's not, you know, the only path and that there's equally, if not more, um, skill sets and, and things to learn at, you know, smaller startups. Um, well, thank you so much, Casey, for joining us and like teaching us so much 
about SaaS and infrastructure and just the investment thesis around Cosa Noa's hands-on commitment um, to its founders. And thank you everyone for listening to Founder Friendly. Um, I'm Sky, and be sure to check in next week and email us at founderfriendlysbs at gmail.com if you have any questions or recommendations.